Good morning. I'm going to set my R2-D2 water bottle just down below so as not to distract you. Um, we are in our Advent series. Uh, my name is Philip, by the way. Sorry, I forgot that little thing. Um, Philip, my, we are in our Advent series this morning uh, in our third week, and the series is entitled Awaiting the King. This morning is our third Sunday, and today we jump forward. So get ready, buckle up. We're jumping forward to a text in Revelation in the Revelation of St. John. And uh, last week, Ryan introduced you to Advent as a season in the church's life of waiting. Right? Advent means we wait. And now sitting here this morning, you're in a bit of the same scenario as I found myself in Christmas circa 19, excuse me, 1997 or so, when I accidentally, and I mean it, it was truly an accident, I found one of my Christmas presents early in my parents' closet. It was unwrapped. Sky Racers. Uh, A beautiful box with the real gondola-style cars that raced around your house on a series of mid-air tripwires strung between some load-bearing pieces of furniture and other choice items in the living room, hallway, kitchen, everywhere. Um, They obviously posed no threat of clotheslining family members who simply wanted to enjoy the house, and they were going to be mine on Christmas Day. (laughs) So Ryan gave you an advanced preview, right, and introduced you to the idea of Advent as a season of waiting, which is where we'll be today. All I can say is I hope you had a, have a good poker face as I had on Sunday morning when I unwrapped the gift. Um, this morning we're looking at Revelation, and if you're like me, you might be, just when you approach the book of Revelation, it's at the end of the Bible, you might feel a little bit like Martin Luther who wrote in his 19, 15, not 19, 22 preface to Revelation. He said this, they are supposed to be blessed, referring to the end of the book, who keep what is written in this book. And yet no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it. This is just the same as if we did not have the book at all. Maybe he had met a Christian before, right? Or perhaps a seminary student. Um, But before you get too wound up about Revelation, I'll let you know that we'll be looking at Revelation 1 in light of a more familiar event, Christ's birth. And we're going to lean both on the story of Christ's birth and Revelation 1 this morning and hold them together. As someone has said, the Lord has come, the Lord will come referring to the timeline of Jesus' birth and the return foretold in Revelation. So then, our question this morning becomes, what does Revelation have to do with the birth of Jesus? Or put it another way, how do we live in Advent, a time of waiting, while at the same time anticipating Christmas, which is just around the corner? Well, our answer is the title of our talk this morning, Advent in the Manger, Finding Grace in Common Spaces. And my goal is to convince you of one thing over the next several minutes, and that's this. That Jesus' incarnation is ordinary and shapes our identity and purpose to wait for his return. Jesus' incarnation is ordinary and it shapes our identity and our purpose to wait for his return. And last, before we read the text, for you kids, maybe a cue. My friend, former pastor Rich Lambert, he would always give a cue that kids could listen for and I think it worked great because it always got me, not a kid, but a grown man, uh, listening more closely. Okay, so here goes for all you kids, if you're listening. Here's what I want you to listen for. Listen for the words dog bowl. Okay, dog bowl. What does a dog bowl have to do with King Jesus? Let's read now Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And if you'll listen as I read aloud God's word. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Father, we pray that you would draw near to us, you would be present with us by your spirit, and open our hearts and open our minds to see and receive the gospel of Jesus as we find it here in Revelation 1 this morning. We pray that you do this work in us, this miraculous work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I want you to see three things this morning in our time in Revelation together. Okay, three things. The first, I don't think they're written in your bulletin. Feel free to jot them down if that helps. The first thing is that we miss what is common. The second is we miss the king's life. And third, we miss the kingdom culture. Okay, first we miss what's common. Second, we miss the king's life. And third, we miss the kingdom culture. So we miss what's common first. In Advent, as we've said, we wait for Christ's return in glory. And in this season of, our, of the church, of our life together, we wait for Christmas. So at this point, it's already the second half of December. Christmas is right around the corner. And some of us, to name no names, are a little anxious about the Christmas presents. Maybe we still have to buy and have not done anything on yet. Uh, but you can almost feel Christmas getting closer, Right. And one of the reasons that, that the expectation, excitement is so high and that Christmas holds such a dear place in our lives, even in public life, is all the special traditions that it brings and promises, right? Special music, special food, special gatherings, special toasts and visits from family members and friends. If these are things that you do and experience in December, then it is very unlikely that your life is the same this time of year, maybe to an extreme, <laughs> the most wonderful time of the year, right? In a way, that was the case. That was true for Mary and Joseph as they arrived in Bethlehem, Joseph's ancestral home when the child was almost born. It was an unusual time for them, unexpected pregnancy, a census year that required travel, uncertainty as to when and how the baby would come. But at Jesus' birth, nothing much was out of the ordinary. I know that the meaning of Christ's birth sets that event apart from all others, but the circumstances, the way in which God brought his son into the world was anything but strange. I read an article by Ian Paul, who's a New Testament scholar, a few weeks ago that walked through the setting of Christ's birth. There was no room for Mary and Joseph at the inn, we're told by Luke in his gospel. And yet the place where the little family lands is part of this bigger living structure where a large portion of Joseph's family was gathered especially during a census. So just to paint a very quick picture for you, a first-century home, one like the one perhaps where Jesus was born, had three main areas. Okay, the first is an outer room, which is the inn. That's the inn that Luke names, where family and guests and, and travel, maybe cl close friends, would normally stay. Uh, the second is the main room, which is the largest room. And this served as the living and sleeping space for the entire family. And the third was the stable where the family's animals were kept during the day. And it's this last room, right, the third room in the house, and fully a part of the house, was the one we think where Mary laid her newborn son. But that's not what Luke says. Instead, he says that she laid him in a manger, right? 
It's just not along. Yeah, right? She delayed him in a manger. And where were the family's animals, those who lived in the stable, brought during the night to protect them from elements and thieves and the like? The family room. So that the goats and birds and sheep could feed from the mangers in the family room, in the corner. Or if circumstances required the use of these mangers, the animals could bow in deference to the family and guests bowed in awe and gratitude to look at the face of the newborn baby laid in that same manger. So I'm sorry to ruin your nativity scenes, I know. Okay, we're shaking things up a little bit, but that's what the story does for us. Christ's birth did not take place out in, a country under, out in the country, under the stars, or even in the quiet of a remote local barn. It happened right smack dab in the middle of the living room. Or if scripture is to be believed, and I think that it is. So what? What does that matter? It was common. It was typical. It was ordinary. If anything about it was strange, it was that Jesus got the very worst of the ordinary. Mary laid her newborn son, the son of the Most High, the King of the Nations. She laid him in the equivalent of a dog bowl. This one who John, in the power of the Holy Spirit, says, is and was and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, he was put to sleep in a sheep trough, in a dog dish, at his birth. And this doesn't happen unless it's entirely intentional. Why do I go on about that? Here's what I want you to see. While Jesus' birth was ordinary, it was, we also miss what is ordinary. We simply aren't wired for it. It's not part of who we are. We don't look for the ordinary. We don't examine it. We don't live our lives expecting ordinary people, places, and events to bowl us over, to change our lives. We don't expect the magnificent in the common. Consider the Snuggie. Okay? When you see that couple freezing in the drafty house, black and white, you don't expect a miraculous gift from above. And to be clear, that's the group Snuggie with armholes for convenience. You don't expect that to fall like manna from the heavens and change their lives. Right? And that's when the infomercial that's been in black and white goes to full color. Right? Voila. When something amazing happens, that's when the color comes in. Uh, when we were kids, we went to my grandparents' house. And a few times, I remember, we would ask them, why is everyone so sad in your family pictures, grandma and granddad? Like, why don't they smile? We went on, grandmother, I think they're so sad because everything is in black and white. <laughs> Maybe if the world had just been in color, they would have been a little bit happier, Right? No matter that that's your wedding day or one of your new babies being born, one of my uncles and aunts, or you celebrating someone coming home from the war, we couldn't see the beauty of the moment because it looks so drab, right? It looks so dull, so ordinary, yet, yet, those were life-changing moments in those pictures. At Christ's incarnation, God does the extraordinary in the ordinary and right in public, in the middle of the living room. So what if Jesus doesn't give us the option of coming into this world in a remote place, away from people that we know, out of the public eye, someplace with high walls and locking doors? What if instead he is both true light and true body born in the middle of the house and not in its corner and not in its backyard and in the middle of the city, not on its outskirts? What if he brings the stable into the family room and the family into the stable trough to see the face of God. Now let me ask you a question. What would that mean for the way that you live as a Christian? If that is the case, what would that mean for the way that you live in light of the incarnation? The way that you live publicly, even as a Christian, proclaiming an ordinary birth of the true king in light of the world. We'll come back to that at the end. 
But first, we miss what's common, okay? We miss what is ordinary. Second, we miss the king's life. Okay, in our being wired to value the extraordinary, to love it over the ordinary, we miss the king's life, meaning we miss life with Jesus. Extract it from our life. While Jesus' incarnation was ordinary, we look to what's amazing, we said, right? What dazzles, what stands out, and in doing so, we give our hearts to it. And now this is important, okay? The result of this attention, of our misdirected attention, is that we give our heart to what dazzles, and our lives are actually worse for it. It's not just a momentary change. It's not something that doesn't affect us. We actually give away our love. To say that another way, to lose our vision for God necessarily means that we lose our heart for God. Um, Last weekend, I had the privilege of baptizing my nephew in one of Fort Worth Prez's sister churches in Dallas. The church was arrayed with poinsettias. Advent wreaths were everywhere. Candles were lit. The choir was in robes. And uh, Jack, our four-year-old son, our firstborn, he is sitting there in the front row watching his nephew become a member of the body of Christ. And it was just a sweet, it was a sweet moment. You know, maybe I'm superficial. It's just the red, the red Christmas colors, Jack sitting there. It's beautiful. And just as I'm welcoming my nephew into Christ church, Jack turns to Christina, who is filming this right next to him and casually says, you know, I don't believe in God. <laughs> and then he just waits for her to answer. I got it all on tape. Um, and that's the kind of thing, you know, that's just a little bit distracting in a moment like that. And I want to say to him, like, Jack, when there's cake at the happy birthday Jesus party, oh, it's a very different story, isn't it? Right? Just remember that for a second. Um, and Jack's four-year-old faith is growing. You know, we've been talking about what he said at dinner and other times during the week and talking about faith. But there was, despite the hilarity, there was a little bit of truth in that for all of us, wasn't there? I don't know if you have talked to a four-year-old recently about church but to many, and Jack will be the first one to tell you, it is rather boring, okay? To a four-year-old, this is not the most exciting thing that they see their parents and friends doing. I hope that's not a surprise to you. And the same can be true for us, right? When there's nothing to amaze us and capture our attention, even when the sermon or um, the music bores you, right? We quickly turn away from God. He's not working here, we say. It's not merely, and I want you to get this, it's not merely a change of attention. It's evidence of a change of heart. It is laying bare for us how our hearts really love. Don't be too alarmed at it the next time it happens to you. But it is a small show of our love for God dying. We're losing our sense of the center of life. right? Which for those who through faith share in life with God through Christ will always be Jesus Christ. For those not of faith, it can be even more disorienting. But for all of us, it is a big, big problem. And it makes us, and this is what I want us to see this morning, it makes us have a hard time waiting in Advent. Look with me at verse 4 of our passage. And consider for a moment the way that John begins and he ends. Jesus is he who is and who was and who is to come. And at the end, again, at verse 8, Jesus is he who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. His birth takes place at the center of the house, in the middle of the living room. His name even tells us that he is the center of all things, the center of existence. His return, or the second advent, that we now wait, John describes for us then in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. His birth and death are both definitively public events. They come in the middle. 
Right? But I think Western and American life, social life at least, is moving in the opposite direction, right? in the twin directions of independence and isolation. Uh, Mother Teresa, who spent her life working with the destitute in Calcutta in India, said that the worst disease, the worst disease, is not leprosy, it's not AIDS, it's not cancer, but loneliness. We are lonelier people than ever before. I don't think I have to convince you of that. But we are also starving for the spaces in which God shows us himself and reshapes us as Christians. The ordinary spaces. We long for a shared and ordinary life together. There's an article a couple of years ago that uh, talked about something that, that pop songs, that hit songs have had in common over the last decade. And it was this thing that the author calls the millennial whoop. Okay? Don't tune out if you're not a millennial. Just, it's, they call it the millennial whoop. It's not just for millennials. And I'll try to get this right for those of you who know music for real. But it's this alternating pattern between the fifth and the third of a scale. Okay? Listen to that if it helps you. If it doesn't, you don't have to worry about it. And usually it comes in like a whoa, whoa thing in a song, okay? So you get everyone in the song, usually the point in the music video where like hands are up and everything, it's a big party and everyone's having a great time and it does this whoa, whoa. And they marked how this thing has been, it's been criminally used in so many songs, okay? But why is that so popular in so many hits of the last 10 years from like Kings of Leon to Demi Lovato to anyone? Okay, why is it so popular? It's because that's the point in the song where everyone kind of, joins together, like hands are in the air, everyone at the same time. Everyone can sing that part of the song. It's easy to sing a couple of wah-ohs, right? We long for these kind of shared places where we can encounter others, whether or not we know them well, and we can share a common bond together, right? We know something of them. If that doesn't, if music isn't your thing, if you're not a millennial, um, you can also see in the way that there is, the last little while, a renewed desire um, as the, the demographic called the baby boomers are entering retirement and millennials, children of the baby boomers are entering their career lives, that there's a desire to return to some, in some way the, things, the way things used to be, right? That there was a time that we want to get back to. All I want to point out is that speaks to a longing that we all want to share the same ordinary again, right? We all want not just an ordinary, it's not just something predictable, but we actually want to share it together. That makes us feel good. But if we're wired for the extraordinary, and if we indulge ourselves in what dazzles, if we only look for Jesus' life in moments of special importance, then at the same time, we lose the sanctity of ordinary life altogether. So we long for ordinary life, but we also long for ordinary public life, which seems to be disappearing. Take this um, that Ariana Huffington, the founder of the Huffington Post, she said about just the way that people are. Listen as I read her words. She said, When we're children, everything in the world is full of wonder. Flowers, puppies, even our grandmother's old hats. But as we grow older, these things come to seem more ordinary, and life slowly loses its magic. This is especially true in today's hyper-connected age. Although we're immersed in technology that allows us to connect with others, these same gadgets often prevent us from connecting with ourselves. Consider the fact that that we're attached to devices and screens at the expense of spending time enjoying nature, or engaged with art, two of humanity's greatest sources for feeling existential wonder. Another drawback to our always connected way of life is that technology can prevent us from experiencing surprise and serendipity. Take the case of social media platforms like Facebook, which personalize our experiences by using complicated algorithms to display content based on what we already like. This actually prevents us 
from encountering the unexpected. But the element of serendipity is extremely important in our lives because it reveals the deeper logic that orders our world. This fills us with a sense of wonder that helps give our lives purpose. Get what she's not saying here. I know that was a long quote. She is not saying that we are too easily pleased by routine, okay? She's not dinging our attention spans. She's saying that retreating from public and social spaces that are unpredictable in favor of private ones curated to suit our preferences disenchants and desocializes our lives. And we can just as easily do this at home with friends and loved ones as out there in the world, right? Just ask anyone with a smartphone or computer, A lot of our family gatherings involve, like, everyone kind of sitting on their phone, right? To not get lost in a hyper-connected world, all you can show off is what looks extraordinary and amazing. We rehearse looking for and gazing at the extraordinary and the amazing parts of life many times a day. But I would say there was a lot, there was a lot of serendipity, if you could put it that way, in the life of Joseph's family members, who all of a sudden had a new young woman, did Joseph get married, in their living room preparing to give birth. They were effectively forced to be participants in this young woman's furious trial. And I don't know what Mary's birth plan was. Okay, but I can't imagine it included a big group of strangers being in the room and no place to lay her baby after he was born. We find ourselves empty of love for ordinary life altogether and anxious to live lives of faith in this Savior who's not here but whom we wait on for fear that our lack of belief will proven to be untrue or maybe even non-existent. My question for you and for us is how can or will you ever be okay being ordinary and stop straining to be extraordinary? What we don't want to see and don't notice about Jesus' incarnation, we also see as true of ourselves. We want his to be extraordinary, right? We want this to be the living room of all living rooms in first century Palestine, It wasn't. It was just an ordinary living room. And you too, and me too, are not extraordinary people. We are ordinary people. But wouldn't it be a relief to stop straining to be extraordinary all the time? And to be so tuned into those things only, missing what's ordinary. To enjoy the benefits, the richness of kingdom life that God provides through his ordinary measures of grace, community, and encouragement and faith. The bread and butter of the Christian life. But how would that happen? The place we've got to start is to first trust God that he loves you in your ordinariness. Maybe there's a reason why Christ's incarnation took place in such ordinary ways among ordinary people. It's because, friends, he loves you in your ordinariness. And maybe we could start seeing that what's extraordinary about you is not your intellect. It's not your looks. It's not your track record of success. It's not your selflessness, even your service to others. But it's the extraordinary Savior who loves you. Enough to literally, Advent, to come to arrive in order to love and save you. Enough to give you a new story that takes every ordinary thing in your life and gives it purpose and meaning. So we miss the king's life because we're not tuned to what's ordinary. And lastly, we miss the kingdom culture. Okay, To widen things out a bit, we miss the kingdom culture. What does this mean for our lives? Where does living a kingdom culture first show up in our text? Let's look back at our passage again. Jesus Christ is him who is and who was and who is to come. The faithful witness, the ruler of kings on earth. Skipping down to verse 7. And behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even all the tribes of the earth. 
So as Advent people, we said we wait on this very visible public return of Jesus to claim us. And what terms does John put Jesus already claim on us in? It's right there in the middle. Verses 5 and 6. He says, Jesus has already made us a beloved kingdom. A beloved kingdom. Waiting on our not yet arrived king. So then, how do we wait? How do we be a waiting beloved kingdom? One reason that we have trouble waiting is that we've given up the kind of kingdom culture I think that John has in mind. Okay, we've abdicated. We've given up our kingdom. Well, how so, you might ask. In our search to cure our loneliness, we in so many ways have opted out of normal Christian living, of, of Christian kingdom life. And I mean the Christian kingdom life that is totally other-dependent community along the way. Okay, consider for a moment, you don't have to turn there, just consider the end of Acts 2, where the, the place, that's the place where the, the just-begun church is learning how to live this new kingdom culture. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Early Christians modeled a risky dependence on one another. How risky is your dependence on your brothers and sisters in Christ? On your neighbors? Right? On strangers whom God has put in your life to bear public witness about Jesus? Think for a moment to drive this home. Who did Jesus depend on okay, after his birth, including his birth, but all through his early life in ministry? His God and Father, as verse 6 of our passage says, certainly constantly, right? Even Jesus says in John five nineteen that he can do nothing that his father isn't doing. But who else? Jesus depended on fishermen, on prostitutes, on carpenters, on young stay-at-home moms, on invalids and the chronically ill, on adulterers, those who are hungry and homeless, on the destitute. Depended on them in so many ways for, for, for social context, right? To pr- make a meal. I mean, just count the ways that you depend on people in your life already. But listen to that list, and does that sound like your life? Or put it this way, do you choose the people you depend on based on means, based on social standing, or something that they can offer you? And it's only natural, right? It's only natural. But it is also not the king's life because it's not mimicking the kind of community that he practiced and instituted. As the witty author G.K. Chesterton says, God himself is a society. And in the incarnation, Jesus chose to depend on society, to commit himself in some way to a society, to publicly bear witness with his very life. And what, yet what keeps us from practicing the king's life this way, from kind of rejecting this sort of kingdom culture, it's very often and almost always the exact same things that we look for in others, right? Money, social power, position, self-serving relationship. And we get stuck, don't we, in a kind of self-perpetuating cycle that, that's keeping us from the king's life, keeping us at some distance, maintaining independence in our lives. But we are missing the rich life of the king, like the king, with the king. We don't create the culture that the king himself started in us. Remember Matthew 25, when Jesus, speaking of his final advent, very relevant to what we're looking at this morning, Speaking of his return, he says, The king will say, As you fed or gave water or clothed or visited 
or cared for the least of these, you did it to me. Jesus is the one, the center of our life altogether. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writing in Life Together, this great book on community, he writes, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. So what do we do? Simple. And I can't say the word ordinary more than I already have. Okay, so simple, right? Simple things. We simply be Advent people. As we await the King, our work is to be Advent people. That's why Advent is here at the end of the church calendar, before Christmas begins for us the new year. Advent is the end, actually, of our church year. We are in the last days, both cosmically and in the way that we live and rehearse this Christian story year-round. And I may be closest to holding an amillennial view, if you're into that sort of thing, probably just because Augustine first held one. But I believe, um, I agree with William Peterson, who's a theologian, and says, says this. Maybe you agree with him, too. He writes, while there is scant hope of changing the culture around us, the church need not be a fellow traveler. The call is for the church to reclaim for the sake of its own life and mission, Advent's focus on the reign of God, and in so doing, to hone once again the countercultural edge of the gospel at the very beginning of the liturgical year. So how do we wait as Advent people? How do we wait in the ordinary, in the public ways that Jesus has given us? Fortunately, we have Revelation 1, 4 through 8. Okay, John gives us intentionally, he put a whole list, a checklist of what this looks like right in our passage. Look with me. You talk to people who need a companion. Look at verse 4. He says, John, in forced exile, sorry, this is not in verse 4. This is what's behind verse 4. John, in forced exile, he writes to the seven churches that are in Asia, which I'll spare you the history lesson, but he's essentially writing to all Christians at large. All Christians. This is the only New Testament writing to be a general letter to all Christians. This one right here, Revelation. It's an apocalyptic, a politically revolutionary text written by perhaps, perhaps, and this is important for us, the most lonely guy on earth at this time. A political exile because of his faith. How could he write such a thing? Right? How could he remember those with whom he is joined at a time like this? But what else do we do? You encourage others in Jesus. Look at verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. You care for people. Look at verse 6. Jesus loves and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests. It's largely what priests do. Right? They care for each other, console and comfort one another under God's care for us. John's repeated order of naming Jesus as he who is and who was and who is to come, that sets for us an order of Christ's incarnation. His eternality and unity with the Father and the Spirit and His coming advent. Do you see that? Is and was and is to come. We are not like the hopeful Cindy Lou Who, although I love Dr. Seuss. We are not like Cindy Lou Who, who to borrow from him, she waits for Santa to come down the chimney. Right? But once he's here, he'll be here. Flesh and blood, right? bringing Christmas tidings and, oh, of course, the gifts. For Cindy Lou, Santa will be. Then he is. And then if all things go well, maybe next year he'll come again. No, 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 friends. Jesus is, he was, and he is to come. This is what makes us an Advent people. This is what makes us an Advent people. As Pastor Darwin says, I think the late Eugene Peterson too, a resurrection people. Christ is. He ain't was until he is. John wants us to get that. 
He says it twice, at the beginning and at the end. On Christmas Eve and all of Advent, we are fully awake because Jesus is awake. And we wait in readiness to joyfully celebrate Christ's embrace of us in this world one more time until he comes again. One author I've been enjoying this month, Fleming Rutledge, writes a great book on Advent. She describes Advent waiting this way. She says it's like hoping against hope. She says, hoping against hope means trusting in the God who raises the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Romans 4. This is the truly radical nature of the Advent promise, which sweeps away cheap comforts and superficial reassurances, and in the midst of the most world-overturning circumstances, still testifies that, behold, I'm coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We wait as people who have already been saved, been redeemed, who worship a Savior who loves us and already frees us by his blood and has made us a kingdom. Jesus' ordinary, his public incarnation gives us every reason to value relationship with the people God has put into our lives. From the mailman to that annoying guy in your office, to your siblings, to the woman that cuts your hair, to the person who works at the convenience store that you frequent, to the neighbor who's just a little bit too friendly for your liking, to that family member who is so needy it's exhausting. We not only know and value our neighbor, we learn to entrust ourselves to them as the Alpha and the Omega did in a manger, in the ordinary, in weakness, in the middle of a family room, and in public with the whole household looking on. I want to close just with the story of this kind of love from Anthony Bloom, who's a Russian Orthodox priest. He tells a story about an ordinary kind of love that refused to be private, but instead sought out a neighbor. He writes this. This story is taken from the late history of the Russian church. I think it shows what I'm trying to say about being a Christian. In the years of the Civil War, when the opposing armies were contending for power, conquering and losing ground in the course of three years, a small town fell into the hands of the Red Army, which had been held by the remnants of the imperial troops. A woman found herself there with her two small children, four and five years of age, in danger of death because her husband belonged to the opposite camp. She hid in an abandoned house, hoping that the time would come when she would be able to escape. One evening, a young woman, Natalie, of her own age, in the early 20s, knocked at the door and asked her whether she was so-and-so. When the mother said she was, the young woman warned her that she had been discovered and would be fetched that very night in order to be shot. The young woman added, you must escape at once. The mother looked at the children and said, how could I? The young woman, who thus far had been nothing but a physical neighbor, became at that moment the neighbor of the gospel. She said, you can, because I will stay behind and call myself by your name when they come to fetch you. But you'll be shot, said the mother. Yes, but I have no children. And she stayed behind. We can imagine what happened then. We can see the night coming, wrapped in darkness and gloom, in cold and damp, this cottage. We can see there a woman who was waiting for her death to come, and we can remember the Garden of Gethsemane. We can imagine Natalie asking that this cup should pass her by and being met like Christ by divine silence. We can imagine her turning an intention towards those who might have supported her, but who were out of reach. The disciples of Christ slept, and she could turn to no one without betraying. We can imagine that more than once she prayed that at least her sacrifice should not be in vain. Natalie probably asked herself more than once, What would happen to the mother and the children when she was dead? And there was no reply except the word of Christ. No one has greater love 
than he who lays down his life for his friend. How will you weight this Advent in ordinary ways, in other valuing ways, in public ways? How will you publicly bear witness to Jesus Christ? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us um, a richness of dignity for who we are in Christ, and yet holds out something that is more than what we are willing to settle for, um, that is more than what we know. It is to be an Advent people, ones who are marked, who are dignified, who are given purpose by the life of Jesus Christ. We pray that you cause us to hope, to have and remain in a steadfast hope of Christ's return, which is at hand. We pray that this would change the way that we value the ordinary and that we publicly wait and bear witness to Christ's life and to the reality of Jesus Christ, who is and who was and who is to come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.